0: Thank you for joining us today. At Res Life, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. I want to say thank you to you as a church for supporting us for all of these years. Denise and I can tell you, are you listening careful? We proudly have been colluding with Russia for 29 years. No secret about it, we collude with Russia. And I want to tell you that God is doing great things in Russia. Just amazing. Just recently, I was invited to an event at the Kremlin. Who would have ever imagined? President Putin and his presidential administration, I know you hear all kinds of nonsense about him, but we live there, there's another side. And this is one of the sides. We were invited to the Kremlin, me and my son with another 20 120 Protestant leaders for the celebration of the Protestant Reformation. And we sat in the Kremlin Palace. I sat in my seat. It was so surreal. I leaned over to my son and I said, 30 years ago we would be sitting in prison for being Protestant leaders in Russia. And here we are sitting in the Kremlin Palace. And as I looked out the window, I could see the snow falling on the towers of the Kremlin. And they gathered a huge orchestra. Because it was the celebration of the Protestant Reformation, a big choir came. And we're sitting there in the very place where believers used to be sentenced and exiled to prison. And the choir and the orchestra played and sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And they thanked us for our leadership role in Russia. Is that just amazing? It is amazing. God is working in Russia and we're just so proud of what God is doing and so thankful that the Lord allowed me and Denise and our sons to be a part. And thank you that you have been one of our partners for the 29 years that we have been there. You know, when you obey the Lord, you never know where it's going to lead. We thought we were going there for one year. Now, 29 years later, eight russian speaking grandchildren we are so inducted into russia that when we get together as a family no english is spoken in our house we are truly immigrated into russia and we love the russian people we're so thankful for their hearts when they come to the lord they come to the lord with all of their heart in fact when you speak to russian believers you will never hear a russian believer talk about the day they got saved. They don't use that terminology. If you ask somebody when they came to Christ, they will answer you, every one of them without exception. Well, the day that I repented, all of them go back to the moment of repentance. Nobody talks about salvation. This wasn't the process of osmosis, just genuinely, you know, carefully being absorbed into the church. They all go back to a dramatic moment, a moment of repentance. And it is just awesome to be there where God is moving in such a dramatic way. And I want to say thank you for being a part of it for all of these years. Thank you so much. Pastor Dwayne, thank you. Thank you. But today I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. If you were in the earlier service, you're going to get something different in this service. Is that okay, Pastor Dwayne? We're going to do something different in this service. But as you turn there, I want to tell you that I have a new book. And uh, I was told just before the service that the book sold out in the first service. This book is really resonating with people, and the name of the book is How to Keep Your Head on Straight in a World Gone Crazy. And this is what I'm going to be speaking about in tonight's service. We don't have it on our resource table, but you can order it at Amazon. This book really dives into the nonsense that is confronting us in the world today. In Matthew chapter 24... Jesus said to his disciples, he began to enumerate signs that we would see just before he comes. And most people who teach on prophecy say that Israel is the big sign and it is definitely one of the signs. But when Jesus enumerated the signs we would see just before he comes, Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, he said, take heed that no man deceive you. The word deceive, which Jesus used, is the Greek word planel the word Planel would be better translated delusion. And in fact, it is translated as the word delusion in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul teaches at the end of the age, delusion will enter the mainstream of society. When you study 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, which I'm going to cover tonight, the Apostle Paul says that at the end of the age, there will be spirits of deception, seducing spirits. It's also, again, the Greek word Planel. It means hordes. Of spirits that produce delusion will be sent into society. We are living in delusionary times. When men don't know if they're men and women don't know if they're women and people think they actually have the ability to change their gender, this is delusional. And these are the times that we're living in. Like it or not, God said, Tag, you're it. You're going to live in the last days. And so we have to know how to live in these last days and stop the lunacy from getting into our houses and into our churches. We have to keep the lunacy on the outside. If the whole world wants to lose their head, that's all right. But we're God's people and we're supposed to keep our head on straight. Well, you can't get this book on the table because it's already gone. But I want to encourage you to go to Amazon and order it because this is really a book you will be glad that you read. It will definitely generate conversation. But open your Bibles to John chapter 5, and today I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Is that all right? John chapter 5. And Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that we can gather in this wonderful place today and stand in this pulpit where the Word of God has been heralded for decades. What a privilege. And Holy Spirit, you're the one that authored this word. And today we ask you to break it open and teach it to us. Take us into the scriptures. We're asking that we don't just hear it, but that we step into it till we see it. We feel it. We feel like we have been there and we've been changed by it. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1. And in John chapter five, verse one, John is writing and he says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches in these, that is in these five porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk. And then he describes them a blind halt withered waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto them, Wilt thou be made whole? But let's go back, if we would, to verse 2. And in verse 2, the Bible says, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. When you enter the ancient city of Jerusalem from the side of the Mount of Olives, you enter through a gate which today is called the Lion's Gate. And the reason it's called the Lion's Gate is because two lions are carved in the stone above the gate. The church historians tell us that was actually the very place where Stephen was stoned for his faith in Acts chapter 7. And for many centuries, it was called Stephen's Gate, but it was one of the main entrances into the ancient city of the old city of Jerusalem. And if you walk through that gate, you enter onto a road which today is traditionally called the Via Dolorosa. That road is right behind the backside of the temple. And as you walk along the Via Dolorosa, most tourists just walk right past something very important. They don't know that it's there. But there is a church there called the Church of Saint Anne. Saint Anne, whose name really was Anna, was the mother of the Virgin Mary. And according to early Christian tradition, that is where Mary's parents lived in the city of Jerusalem. If you ever go to Jerusalem, make sure you go there. But make sure you're physically fit because to see the original residence, you have to go down one flight of steps and another flight of steps and another flight of steps and another and another until finally you come to the original level of Jerusalem where there really is the ruins of a first century house that were identified in the third century and commemorated as early as the fourth century as the place where Jesus' grandmother lived in the city of Jerusalem. But if you leave there and walk just a bit further, you come to a big gate, and when you walk through the gate, you enter into the ruins of something very ancient, and it is the ruins of the pool of Bethesda. Well, if this is true, and it's likely that it is true, it would have explained why Jesus was on the backside of the temple on that day in an area that was very remote, an area that was not used by a lot of travelers because it was on the backside of the temple. Jesus has entered that gate into the old city. He may have been there to see grandparents or to see relatives. And as he came out and kept walking toward the old city, he found himself walking into the pool of Bethesda. We know a lot about the pool of Bethesda. First of all, we know a lot because it's called a pool. The word pool is a Greek word kalambraithra. The word kalambraithra only described two locations In the city of Jerusalem, it described the Pool of Bethesda, and the other was the Pool of Siloam. Well, when you go to the Pool of Siloam today, you can see the Pool of Siloam, which was in Greek called a Kalambraithra, was a very well-developed, sophisticated, ornate, beautiful, luxurious place. Beautiful, just beautiful. That same word is now used to describe the Pool of Bethesda, which means this was not just a hole in the earth, this was a Kalambraithra. I remember when I was a boy, I used to love to watch the Beverly Hillbillies. Did any of you ever watch the Beverly Hillbillies? Do you remember what they had in their backyard? They had a seaman pond. Well, this word, Columbray through describes a seaman pond, except it wasn't made of cement. It was made of marble. The sides were lined with marble. The bottom was lined with marble. And the Bible says that there were five porches. And this also is very important because the word porch is the Greek word stoa, And we know what a stoa is because they were all over the Greek and the Roman world. A stoa was a long sidewalk that was covered with beautiful, beautiful, intricate mosaics, extremely expensive. And above the mosaics, there was a terracotta roof, was a stoa, or it was a covered colonnade, and the roof was held up by beautifully carved columns. And you found stoas, or porches of this sort only in areas where the affluent and the wealthy congregated. But the Bible says the Pool of Bethesda didn't have one, it had five. And actually, when you look at the Pool of Bethesda, you understand there were two pools. There was a lower pool, there was an upper pool, the lower pool was 50 feet square, the upper pool was 55 feet square, and there really were five covered porches that encircled these bodies of water. And when the Pool of Bethesda was first constructed, it was not constructed to be a place for sick people. It was constructed for wealthy people. That's why stoas were there, porches were there with mosaics and frescoes and finely carved columns. This was a magnificent place. And in fact, early historians tell us the Pool of Bethesda originally. Was a place where the intelligency of Jerusalem would gather back on the backside of the temple, a remote area. Even priests, when they were finished serving in the temple, they would come across the road into the Bull of Bethesda, where they would bathe, where they would swim, and they would sit under the stoas, and they would order food. It was like the country club of Jerusalem. But by the time that we come to John chapter 5, something serious has happened to this place. Because the rich are gone. The affluent have vacated this place. And now it is thickly populated with sick people. And it is the sick people that have renamed it. We don't know what the original name was, but we know the sick people renamed it and the sick people themselves called it Bethesda. They said this place is Bethesda. And the word Bethesda is an old word which means the house of mercy, It can be translated the house of goodness, the house of grace. It was the place where the sick people believed God's grace was poured out, God's mercy was poured out. They believed if they could just get there, chances were high that they would experience the supernatural goodness of God and they would be healed. And so it was the sick people themselves that renamed this place and said, for us, this is Bethesda. This is where the goodness of God, the miraculous nature of God is manifest. And they begin to congregate in this place. And in fact, so many of them congregated there that verse three says, in these lay, in these stoas, in these five porches lay, the word lay is the Greek word perikamai. It means to be piled one on top of the other. They looked in this place almost like what you see when you open a can of sardines. It was one sick person butted up against another sick person, laying on top of another sick person. There were so many people piled into this place because they were waiting for the miraculous to happen. All of them came into this place, so many of them populating this place that there was hardly room to move or even to step and walk among them. And the Bible even tells us what category of sick people were there. First of all, it says impotent folk, the word impotent is the Greek word "astheneo." It really describes people that are bedfast, people that are homebound. They can't get up. They can't move around. They are immobile. But this word impotent, the Greek word asthaneo, also describes people that are financially strapped. And here we have a picture of what sickness does. Sickness truly is a thief. It takes your time. It takes your relationships. It takes your money. It takes everything. These people are impoverished on every level because of sickness. And then John gets more specific. He says, the blind, the halt, the withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Well, the word blind is a Greek word tuflos. The word tuflos describes those that have lost their sight or those who have no eyes to see. And it was commonly believed in the first century, this was one category of sickness that absolutely could never be healed. Nobody could ever help a blind person. This was the most critical of all diseases. But then it says the halt. The word halt is the Greek word which describes those that are maimed, those that have lost a limb due to an accident. They've lost a hand, they've lost a foot, something's missing. These are maimed people And then it says the withered, very interesting, the word withered is a Greek word zeros. It describes those that are wasted away and it is where we get the word zero, which means in the minds of the people at that time, if you were in this particular category, you were a big zero, you had nothing to contribute to society, you were just a waste of space, a useless eater. And that is now who had gathered in this place. And all of these sick people said, for us, this place is Bethesda. But there's something else we know about this place. When the rich people earlier were coming there, there was an active spring in the bottom of the pool. And the spring kept the water alive. It was fresh. That's why the rich came there. There were only two sources of water in the whole city of Jerusalem. This was one of them. But by the time that you come to this text, the spring in the bottom of the pool has dried up. No water flows in, no water flows out. And because of the five stoas which are built all the way around the pool, even the movement of air does not move the water because the stoas block the movement of air. It's a trapped place. No water flows in, no water flows out. There's no movement of air upon the water to cause a ripple. But yet, look if you would at the following verse. Verse 4, for an angel went down, went down in Greek is the word katabino, the same word used to describe walking down a set of stairs. It pictures an angel literally walking down, almost as if walking down steps, but the angel walked into the pool and troubled the water. This word troubled is a Greek word which means to fiercely agitate in a circular fashion. It almost looked like the tip or the tail of a tornado had stepped set into that water and now the whole body of water began furiously moving in a circular fashion. There was nothing natural about this whatsoever. First of all, there was no spring, no water came in, no water went out. Secondly, even the wind itself couldn't cause a ripple on this body of water but suddenly out of nowhere for no reason, the water would begin spinning like the tail of a tornado that had dipped into the water and the water is literally splashing all around the edges. And the people believed that it was an angel who had stepped into the pool. And that whosoever first, after the agitation of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When the Bible says which had, the word had is a form of the Greek word echo, which means to hold, to possess or even to be restrained or suppressed by. This man had literally been restrained by his affliction. That's what affliction does. It puts you on pause. He had been restrained by it. He had been suppressed by it. And according to this verse, he had been laying there for 38 years. Well, there's some things you can assume pretty safely about this man. First of all, you can assume that he came to the Pool of Bethesda because he believed he would be a recipient of a miracle. Why else would a sick person come to a place like this? Disgusting water, doesn't move, dead water, it's hot temperatures, things are growing in the water, even the rich, the affluent, they've abandoned this place, now it's disgusting, and yet sick people are laying all around it because they're all there to get a miracle. And this man came there believing, believing he would be a recipient. But now 38 years have passed. He has seen people come. He has seen people go. He has seen people get into the water, come out of the water well. In fact, he's seen so many miracles in 38 years, he could have written a bestseller called The Miracles of Bethesda. He's been a witness to it all. But this man is still restrained. He's still in the grip of his infirmity. And verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lie." The word saw is the Greek word harau, It describes a scrutinizing look, a discerning look, which means when Jesus saw this man, he didn't just glance at this man. Jesus really saw him. It was a scrutinizing look. Jesus examined this man. And when Jesus saw him lie, the word lie means to be in a prostrate condition, to be down and out. But one thing you have to understand about Jesus, Jesus doesn't just look at the outward man. Jesus makes a full investigation. And Jesus could see that this man inwardly had laid down. He wasn't just physically down inwardly. This man had given up hope. The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sad. This man has been waiting for 38 years, year after year, after year, after year. His hopes have been dashed as he's seen other people healed. He's heard other people's testimonies and he is in the same condition. And now when Jesus sees him hurrah, it is really a scrutinizing look. It is like x-ray eyes looking into this man. And Jesus can see that inwardly this man has given up. You know, when you minister to people, always pay attention to their posture. Always. You'll learn as you minister to people that posture is a great reflector of an inward condition. I came to learn this when we moved to the Soviet Union. We moved into a little town called Yelkova that Pastor Dwayne took me to for the first time. And at the time that we moved to our part of the world, it was literally the worst moment anybody could have moved to that part of the world. The system was collapsed. There was no food. There was no gasoline. You couldn't even change money because there was no money. There was no sugar. There was no eggs. There was no flour. There was nothing. The stores were vacant. The streets were broken. The buildings were terrible. People were literally living in collapse. But where were they going to go? There was nowhere they could go. This was their home. And Denise and I would see people back in those days walking on the street all hunched over. We saw so many of them back in those days all hunched over walking like this. Well, guess what? Today we see no people bent over. You know why? Hope came. And when hope comes, people begin to stand up straight. Posture really reveals an inward condition. And when Jesus saw this man lying, he knew that he was also inwardly lying. And Jesus said unto him, knowing that he had been now, the verse says, a long time in that case. Long time in Greek is the word chronos. This was a chronic condition. And Jesus said, wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou? Wilt thou? is the word fellow, but here it's the word thales. It's very strong. It is so strong, you could actually translate it, what is your intention? What is your intention? Do you intend to be made whole? The word whole, the Greek word hugies a better translation would be, do you really intend to get your life back? That's a little translation. Do you want your life back? Are you sure you really want your life back? Do you want your life back? Do you really want to be restored to a normal condition? Do you really intend to be changed? Well, in a certain way, it seems like a rude question. Of course the man wants to be changed. He's been laying there for 38 years. But because he's been laying there for 38 years, and now he's laying down on the inside... Jesus knew he needed to really ask this man, are you absolutely sure this is what you want? Is this really what you intend? Do you really want your life back again? Jesus understood that if he gave life back to this man, everything in this man's life was going to change. He wasn't just going to feel better. He was going to have to leave the pool of Bethesda. It was his home. All of his friends were in the pool of Bethesda. He was going to have to change the way he thinks because for 38 years he's thought like a crippled man. He's going to have to change his language because his whole conversation is about his infirmity. It's about his affliction. He's not just sick. He thinks like a sick man. He talks like a sick man. He is a sick man. He is an infirmed person. His friends are all infirmed people. When they talk every day, they talk about their problems. They talk about their infirmities, which they share among themselves. And if Jesus restores him, He's going to have to leave there. He's going to have to learn to think different, talk different. He's going to have to choose new friends. Not only that, he's going to have to get a job. This man's been living on a social program for 38 years. He's been living on a handout for 38 years. If he gets a job, he can't depend on a handout any longer. He's got to get a job. And because he's been sick for 38 years, the chances are technology has changed. He's going to have to get some education before he can get a job. And Jesus knows many people say they want to change. But when push comes to shove, they have become so comfortable in their infirmity that change is just too hard. And many times they let it pass because at least they're acclimated to the way they're living. It's comfortable. It's not the best, but hey, I've been here a long time. It's exactly what people do today. It's one of the greatest frustrations in pastoral counseling. You see, it's so easy to say you want to change until the moment comes. It's like people who say, God, I want to lose weight, I want to lose weight, I want to lose weight, and they really mean that until they walk past the refrigerator. But the refrigerator is the revealer. Do they really want to change? Do they really want to push the plate away? How much do they want to change? Verse 7, the impotent man, this word impotent, the homebound man, the financially impoverished man, he has lost everything because of this thief, this sickness that has suppressed him. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. Well, you have to point out, first of all, in verse 7, he calls Jesus, the King James Version says, sir. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek is the word kurie, which is the direct form of a word kurios. It is the word for absolute master and Lord. When he called Jesus, sir, that's what the King James Version says. He was recognizing the absolute authority of Jesus. And likewise, change will never take place in your life unless you respect the absolute authority of Jesus and you're willing to do whatever it is that Jesus tells you to do. And when he called Jesus, sir, the Greek literally says, kurie, absolute master, I'll do anything that you tell me to do to get out of here. His submission to Jesus' authority was his first step out of his affliction and it is also yours. But notice what he said to Jesus. I have no man when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. Put me into the Greek word balo. I have no man to pick me up, to throw me over all these other sick people, and hurl me into the water before anybody else gets there. But notice his answer, I have no man. He blamed his lack of recovery on other people. It's exactly what people do today. Well, I would change if my husband would change. Well, I would change if that church would be who they're supposed to be. You know, I was sick and nobody even called me. I would change, but I have no man. But Jesus didn't ask him about other people's participation. Jesus just asked him a direct question. What is your intention? Do you really want to get your life back? Are you absolutely sure you want to change? And the man says, you're the Lord, I'll do whatever you say, but let me tell you my story. While I'm trying to get into the water, I have nobody to pick me up and hurl me, bellow over everybody else into the water. And because of that, while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Oh, I've tried, I have tried, I have tried to get into the water first, but somebody always beats me into the water. Verse 8. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Well, wait. He had already called Jesus Lord, which meant Jesus now had been granted the authority to tell him what to do. (laughs) This changes everything. And Jesus interrupts the man's confused answer and says, Rise, The word rise in Greek is the same word usually translated resurrection. He was commanding the man to stand up almost like a person being resurrected from the dead. Stand up, I'm going to give you your life and pick up your bed and walk. The word walk, the Greek word peripato, which means get moving. Pick up your bed and get moving. It was a direct command. Now, what do you think the other people in that place thought when Jesus said, to the crippled man who couldn't move, stand up, pick up your bed, and keep moving. I can just imagine that they might have said, that is so rude. What a lack of compassion to tell a crippled man to stand up. The least thing you could do is take him by the arm and help him. How dare you tell him to pick up his bed and walk, get moving. Are you blind? Do you not understand this is a crippled man? And sometimes when you minister to other people and you have a direct word of the Spirit, you can't worry about what people are thinking around you. You have to say what the Lord tells you to say. Jesus said, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And verse 9 says, immediately the man was made what? Say that word. Ho. Wow, wow, wow. It is the Greek word therapeo. The Greek word therapeo is where we get the word therapy a little translation would be, and immediately the man was therapied. Now, why is that important? Because when you study the four gospels, study the ministry of Jesus, his healing ministry, the primary word used to describe the healing ministry of Jesus is this word therapeo, which means Jesus didn't just speak to people and leave them. He therapied them. That is literally the word for healing, which primarily describes the ministry of Jesus. He told a sick man who had a withered hand, what did he tell the man with a withered hand to do? Stretch forth your hand. That seems like a very rude thing to say to a man with a withered hand. He can't do that. But Jesus knew the power wouldn't take root till the man cooperated. Therefore, it is translated as the word therapeo. He therapied the man. He released the power but required the man to do something. That's why Jesus told people to walk. He told people to pick up their bed. He made them do something. And in fact, I personally believe that's why we don't see more signs and wonders in the church. We pray for people without requiring the people to do anything. If they've got a problem with their foot, tell them to use their foot. If they've got a problem with their back, tell them to bend over. Therapy them. That's how Jesus healed the sick. Jesus was telling people to respond. Do this, do that. And as they begin to respond, that's when the power would take root. Denise and I have seen this in our ministry in Russia over and over and over. We hardly ever just lay hands on anybody anymore without also saying, Now do what you couldn't do. And that's what Jesus did. He therapied this man. He didn't just say, Rise. He said, Pick up your bed. Get moving. Use those legs. What happened next? Verse 9, immediately the man was therapied. He was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was what? The Sabbath. Wow. Now, why does the Holy Spirit tell us it was the Sabbath? Because on the Sabbath day, there are rules. You can't work on the Sabbath. You can't do anything that exerts energy on the Sabbath. And not only that, the Jews were so religious in Jerusalem, you could only walk a Sabbath day's walk, which was a very short walk. Even to this day, Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie can tell you, if you go to Jerusalem, the religious Jews are so committed to the Sabbath day rules that if you ever stay on the top floor of a hotel on the Sabbath, do not get in the Sabbath day elevator because it automatically stops on every floor, going up, going down. It takes a long time to get up and down on the Sabbath day elevator because they believe it is improper to push a button on the Sabbath. Well, now Jesus says to this man, pick up your bed and get moving. He violates every law of the Sabbath. The man is carrying a bed that is work. Now of that, Jesus said, Perry Patel, get moving, the man is walking, walking, walking around much more than you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured. It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. It was the equivalent of saying, "This is not a good time for you to change get." back on your mat. What are you doing? Get back on the bed. This is not a good time to change. And likewise, when God begins to do a delivering work in our life, you need to be aware that everybody may not rejoice when you begin to change. When you begin to change, your change becomes like a floodlight in other people's eyes. They hide, they run, they want to shut you up, put your light out, put you back on that mat. And Jesus said to him, pick it up, walk. The Jews who had a religious spirit. What's a religious spirit? A religious spirit is resistant to change. It's resistant to change. It doesn't even have to be religious. It's just a spirit that's resistant to change. And they said, get back on the mat. Do you realize this is the Sabbath day? And he answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up my bed and walk. Then asked they him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up your bed and walk? Then look at this in verse 13. And he that was healed knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away in a multitude in that place. But notice in verse 13, it says, he that was what? Healed. What was the other word for made whole? Therapeo. This is the Greek word, eaomai. Oh, that's really important. It's different. Because the word ieomai is the Greek word which means to progressively become better, which means Jesus released the power But then Iaomai kicked in as the man began walking in his experience step-by-step Iaomai. He began to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what happens when God does a work in your life. God initiates it. But as you get moving, as you take your steps of faith, every step of faith, you become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And as this man walked, this man was becoming better and better and stronger and stronger. And the Bible tells us in the following verse verse 14 afterward jesus found him <laughs> this word found tells us a lot about jesus it's the word heurisko it's where we get the word eureka it means to make an investigative discovery tells us Jesus was not content to leave the place till he found the man. Jesus literally said, find me that man. Find me that man that I touched. Find me that man that got up and walked. And finally Jesus found him. And when Jesus found him, it was a eureka moment. Jesus was so good, Which means Jesus Christ is great at follow-up. He doesn't just touch you and leave you. He sticks with you all the way to the end. That's Jesus. And that's what we need to do for others. And notice what Jesus said, behold, thou art made whole. This word behold is so powerful. The word behold in Greek literally translated, it's almost impossible to translate in the English language, but this is really the best. When Jesus found the man, he said, wow, thou art made whole. Jesus was so impressed with the transformation, he himself lost his breath. Wow, amazing. Isn't that what you want Jesus to say when he looks at you? Don't you want Jesus just to look at you and say, wow, that's an amazing thing that I did in your life. And Jesus said, behold, wow, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worse thing come unto thee. Well, there's insight into that. There's great insight there. There's something in this man's life, some action in his past, something in his character had opened the door, which first allowed this sin, this sickness to come unto him. It tells us if we do the wrong thing, think the wrong thing, behave the wrong thing, make wrong decisions, we can spiritually open doors. We need to keep every door closed, seal every crack, make sure the devil finds no entrance. And that's now what Jesus is saying to this man. Wow, what an amazing thing I've done in you. Now close every door and make sure it never comes back. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the... Sabbath day what a remarkable story and my friends we're not reading a fairy tale this really happened at the pool of Bethesda just about 10 meters from Jesus grandmother's house Jesus just strolled into town probably to see his family walking on strolls into the pool of Bethesda and behold he sees he takes a scrutinizing look in the entire crowd he sees that one man And when that man calls Jesus, sir, kurie, kurias, when he calls Jesus, Lord, it opened the door for Jesus to speak into this land's life. And I'll tell you something else very interesting. Look back, if you would, at verse 13, and he that was healed. This word healed appears several times. The word hugies, you know what it literally means? The man that got his life back. The man that got his life back. It's the same word that Jesus used in verse 6, verse six when he said, Wilt thou be made whole? The word hugies, do you want your life back? I'll give you your life back. But tell me, what are your intentions? Are you really serious about this? And when the man called Jesus, Sir, courier, Lord, it changed everything. And that's what will happen to you if you submit whatever infirmity you have in your life to Jesus. And if you're willing to do anything he tells you to do, he'll give it all back. He'll give your marriage back, he'll give your finances back, he'll give your hope back, he'll give your health back. He'll give it all back, but it begins when you say, sir, Lord, that opens the door for Jesus to take action. I'd like you to bow your heads. I want to pray with you today. Father, we thank you in the marvelous name of Jesus for the wonderful word of God. It is so wonderful. We thank you that you're the same yesterday. Today and forever, what you did is exactly what you're doing today. And I know that today you're asking each one of us, Do you really want your life back? What are your intentions? And you're waiting for us to submit it all to you. Lord, today we submit it to you. We say, Sir, Lord, tell me what to do, and we'll obey you. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the Word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.